Please turn to James chapter 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who preserves under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. You may be seated. For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords of his sin. He shall die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he shall go astray. Proverbs five twenty one to 23. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 and 13. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth, and put perverse lips far from you. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right 
or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. Proverbs 4, 23 through 27. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, to you we pray this morning. You are holy, ruling and reigning above, exalted and majestic. You are king and we welcome you this day. Father, we come this day before you as subjects of the king. Acknowledging our need for you today and in the days to come. In light of this text that we have open before us in James chapter 1. Father, I pray that you would shine your light of truth into every corridor of our heart and mind. I pray that you would open our ears to hear the voice of wisdom. And I pray that you would incline our ways toward righteousness. Because you, Father, are righteous in all your ways. I pray that this body would not be deceived by the sins that entangle them. I pray that this body would come to know what it is to be truly blessed as they walk through the trials of life, patiently enduring to the end. I pray that this church would grow in her love for God, in her fear of the Lord, and in her pursuit of holiness. And as we turn to your word, Father, I pray we would do so with a right understanding of who you are and grant to us an honest assessment of who we are and what we're doing here on this place called planet Earth, why we're here. May our desires be increasingly conformed to your desires as we wash ourselves in the cleansing power of your word, walking in the spirit and resting in your goodness for all things. Father, we're praying that you would do a great work through your great word this morning. May we respond in obedience to what your word has to say this morning. And in the name of Jesus Christ, The word, the Lagos, who was with you in the beginning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning by reading the last few verses of where we left off last week. So join me in the word. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to have them open. James chapter 1, let's follow along, beginning in verse 6. But let him ask in faith. Remember verse 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 is addressing our need. We talked about that last week. Our need, our wisdom. It's what we need in the midst of trials that come. He then shows his scattered flock where to turn for their need. Verse 5, ask of God. And he follows that up with how to do it, how to turn. Ask of God in faith with no doubting. And when you arrive at verse 9, you might be inclined to scratch your head a bit. Wonder how James could go from talking about a double-minded man to speaking of the lowly and the rich. I want you to keep in mind that James is addressing a flock that has been scattered through persecution. And you know, many in the church 
would be characterized as poor. Literally leaving behind what possessions they had in the face of persecution. Some in the church may have been materially well off. And persecution has no doubt in itself caused them to consider the place of their accumulated wealth. Of what they have. James is addressing the poor and the rich. And he's calling them both to glory or to boast. But in two different directions. I want you to see this. Exaltation in the life of the poor brother. Humiliation in the life of the rich. James will come back to address the poor and the rich later in the epistle. In fact, he'll talk about it a few different times in this epistle. For now, though, he's bringing the poor and the rich together. And he calls them both to focus on matters of eternity. His desire, I believe, is that the poor and the rich would not be characterized by double-mindedness, saying yes to God on one hand and yes to their particular condition on the other hand. You might be saying, what do you mean? Well, we look at the text and it says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. The lowly brother is a Christian who is poor in the eyes of the world, would be seen as poor in the eyes of the world. He doesn't have a whole lot. And again, context would lead us to believe that not many in the church at Jerusalem in this time would have had a whole lot to depend upon. This church in itself would have been deemed a very real trial for those in the church at Jerusalem. The fact that they were poor. That in and of itself would have been a trial. A very real trial for these people. The imperative right here, the command by Pastor James as he's speaking to his flock is that this lowly brother in the Lord glory or boast in his exaltation. Let's be clear what we're talking about here when we see glory or boast. In this context, not the arrogant boasting of self-important, but the, the joyous pride, says one writer, possessed by the person who values what God values. And so he goes on and he says that the exaltation includes the believer's present enjoyment of his exalted spiritual status as well as his hope of what is yet to come. And we see this played out in the book of Ephesians. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 5, 6, and 7 gives us a picture of this. But God, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ. In Christ. Here's more encouragement from the word regarding the lowly brother glorying in his exaltation. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that... Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform, listen to this, He's going to transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able to subdue all things to Himself. And we see Paul writing in 2 Corinthians 4, our light affliction. For these people, this was a real trial. Poor, poverty. Not having a whole lot of stuff. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and etern eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. 
It's not about what we have in our pocket necessarily. It's what's in our heart. It's what we are focused upon. What is our attention on here as citizens of heaven? The things which are seen are temporary, Paul says, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. You see, the temptation here for the lowly brother is to dwell on what he doesn't have. To allow the voice of the world to dictate how he feels. To focus on that which is visible versus that which is unseen. Those things that are eternal, Paul says. The lowly brother is called to fix his eyes on his status with the Lord to remember who he is in Christ, where he's currently seated, if he is in Christ. To recount that the words of Jesus, remember those words of Jesus in Matthew 5, go back to the Sermon on the Mount again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. To recall that God has exalted his son, Philippians chapter 2. And thereby in our union with Christ, church, this is so important, in our union with Christ, we are now awakened to the privilege of glorying in our exaltation. Thanks be to God for sending his son and glorifying him that we together with him might live in light of who we are in Christ. This is such an important truth. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. James contrasts the poor and the rich. Both are called to glory. Both are called to boast. But the rich is directed to glory in his humiliation. What's James getting at here? What's he suggesting? The word here is used as a noun in this particular text. It's the same word that uses an adjective in verse 9. Lowly, same word, just used in a different way. The rich man is to glory in his humiliation. I believe what we see here in the text is James is putting his finger on something for the rich man to help this rich man understand something very important. That no matter what the world might say and no matter how the world might view all of your riches... Your status before God is different. Secondly, I believe as he's calling this rich man to glory in his humiliation, this humiliation may suggest the believer's own identification with Christ. Remember Philippians 2. He humbled himself. Jesus, the Son of God, humbled himself. If there was one who had things at his disposal, it was Jesus Christ. Had all things at his disposal. And yet we see that the Bible says that he humbled himself, became a man, became obedient to death on the cross. Jesus himself was considered of no account by the world, was he not? Isaiah 53 gives us a picture of that a little bit. And and the question arises here a little bit as you read 9, 10, and 11. What what really do I have? Paul addresses this question in Romans. What, What do I have to boast in? What do I have to boast in? 
Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 reminds us of the very thing we ought to be boasting in. The very things we ought not to be boasting in. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories, or let him who boasts, boast in this. Here it is. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. Listen, he says this. For in these I delight, says the Lord. To the rich, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust. Listen how he describes it. Nor to trust in uncertain riches. But in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Proverbs 23, 5. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. James goes on to share why the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. He says, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. You see, the rich man has a different trial set before him, doesn't he? A different trial than the lowly brother. The rich man has a different kind of trial set before him. Having material Wealth, material possessions at his disposal. James is calling this person to the brevity of life. Notice he says, the rich man, he will pass away. He doesn't just say his possessions are going to disappear. It's true also his possessions are going to disappear. But he says, he will pass away. James is calling attention to the brevity of life. And he's going to speak to it again later in the epistle. And he's going to bring this forward. You see in Timothy 6, 17... Paul uses that term, uncertain riches. And he instead points Timothy to follow the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. The proverb writer sees riches as that which is not. Are you going to place your trust in that which is not? James is pointing this out. Don't Don't put your hope and your trust there. It's passing away. He's certain about one thing. The proverb writer is, Riches are going to mount up wings like eagles. They're going to fly away. In the blink of an eye, they're gone. James is reminding the rich man to be content with what Christ offers. Godliness with contentment is great gain. But those who desire to be rich, 1 Timothy 6, 6 and 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts. Which drown men in destruction and perdition. You see that flower that was once beautiful in its appearance. James is painting a picture. Giving us a picture of something that would have been evident to those who are listening. Hearing this word. A flower, a beautiful flower. And just as it's going to fade. When that sun rises and the scorching east wind comes. That beauty that it once had, it's just going gonna, gonna to wither. It's going to fade. 
the rich man also. The rich man in like manner will fade away. Listen to what it says. He'll fade away in his pursuits. Or we could translate that in his business. Do you realize, church, that later on in James chapter 4, he's going to be addressing this man who makes these plans. And he's going to go out for a while and he's going to do business. And James is not against someone planning and preparing. He is against someone who plans and prepares apart from the Lord. Because James in chapter 4 is going to say, it's, if it is the Lord's will, we will go to this city and do this or that and carry out business. If it is the Lord's will. Are we planning and preparing with the Lord in mind? We see the caution here that this man, this rich man is going to fade away right in the midst of what he's pursuing. He's pursuing his dollar bill, his business, his material pursuit. He's going to fade away right in the midst of it. James poses the question later in his epistle, what is your life? It's even a vapor. It's a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes. But now you boast in your arrogance. In other words, you are driven by your business pursuits and not the things of the Lord. In other words, here's where, we're, here's where this is going, I believe. James is progressing. He's going somewhere with this. Here's the question that I believe is asked toward this rich person. Rich man, will you allow your desires to run their course? You see that phrase, your desires, is going to come back into play here in just a short while. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. If we were to summarize 9, 10, and 11, I believe one writer does this very well. And he says, James exhorts both the poor and the rich Christian to remember that the sole basis for their confidence is their identification with Jesus Christ. The poor believer, insignificant and of no account in the eyes of the world, is to rejoice in his relationship with the Lord who has been exalted to the highest position in the universe. And the rich believer, well off and secure in his possession, with great status in the eyes of the world, is to remember that his only lasting security comes through his relationship with the man of sorrows. Despised and rejected by men, Isaiah 53. Both Christians, in other words, must look at their lives from a heavenly and not earthly perspective. Do you see what James is getting at here? James now, in verse 12, he returns for a brief moment to the discussion of trials, verses 2, 3, and 4. Showing the result of one who handles the trials in the right way. Blessed is the man who endures... Temptation or trial, some of your translation may have. For when he has been approved, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Verses 9, 10, and 11 call us to remember. This is kind of a key word, remember. Whether you're rich or poor, remember your status with Christ is of eternal value. Verse 12 shows the results. We're going to see results. Shows the results of handling trials the right way. In other words, handling the right way. Having an eternal perspective on how we handle situations in our lives. 
verses 13, 14, and 15 then are going to show results. What kind of results? Results of handling trials the wrong way. Results of handling trials from a temporary, earthly perspective. And then verse 16 is going to be a warning. And it's going to be a warning both in light of verses 13 through 15, also a warning in light of verses 17 and 18 next week. Okay, that's a little bit of where we're going. Keep that in mind as you read the text. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. You know, that that phrase, blessed, uh, that's language of, of the Psalms and the Proverbs. They pick up on this language of one who's blessed. And Jesus himself uses the terminology uh, several times in succession in Matthew chapter 5, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. One who is blessed by God can rejoice and be exceedingly glad, Jesus says, even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of persecutions, for great is your reward where? In heaven. That's why you can rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. Church, are you after a heavenly reward? Is that the desire of your heart today? Or is the desire of your heart to, to clamor after and go after those things here on earth? Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Do you delight in this word? Are you in this word? Do you desire to know this word? Blessed is the man who delights in this word. Psalm 112, verse 1, blessed is the man who fears the Lord who delights greatly in his commandments. That wonderful Psalm 119 begins this way. Blessed are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord, who walk in the law of the Lord. They don't just say, yes, I like it. Oh, yes, it's good. No, blessed is the man who walks in the ways of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Blessed is that inner joy that comes from the Lord. The man who endures the trial or temptation is the one who in the text is deemed blessed. I don't want you to miss that. Because you see, I think some today want the Lord. They desire the Lord's blessing, but you're not willing to walk in obedience to his word. You like the idea of the Lord's blessing, but you don't really care to have to walk out. See, when when that becomes what you're saying, then, then truly this word is not a delight. If it's a delight, that will equate to walking, enjoying his word. But you see, here's the thing. This is not about just trying harder. I want to read the Bible. I want to. It's not about that. See, here's the thing. You most likely are not going to meditate upon this word day and night unless and until 
You first delight in your relationship with God himself through Jesus Christ. Church, we've got to get that. We've got to understand that. That's the launching pad. That's the starting point for a love for this word. One of the reasons why we sometimes struggle and have a hard time when we wrestle with this is because we don't delight in God. We don't delight in our relationship with Jesus Christ. How then are we going to delight in this word? They're connected. Blessed is the man who delights greatly in this word. How presumptuous of us to desire and want God's blessing without without us doing what the word's called us to do here, this patient endurance called for. There's patient endurance in the midst of the trial called for. The text says that when he has been approved, in other words, when he's been put through the fire, the testing which proves the genuineness of one's faith, 1 Peter chapter 1. When you've been approved, then, look, look at the promise for the one who endures. He will receive the crown of life, or the crown which is life. That's probably another rendering you could have. The crown of life, crown which is life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The crown of life, you might know about this crown of life. In fact, in the day, in, in the, day the crown was used of, as a, of a perishable wreath, right? Runners were running races. The Olympics of the day, they're running races, and, and these perishable wreaths were given to the winners of the contests. But James is speaking of a different crown here, a crown characterized by life. To indicate not a perishable temporal reward, but an imperishable eternal reward. Speaking to the persecuted church in Smyrna, you might recall these words of Jesus in Revelation 2 verse 10. He says this, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And you'll have tribulation 10 days. Listen to what Jesus says. Be faithful until death. Be faithful how long? Until death. And what's he say? And I will give you the crown of life. You see, this crown of life is promised by the Lord. It's promised by the Lord. I came across something this week that was, I thought very helpful. And I want to share it with you. Because it was helpful for me. It was, it was, it was a wonderful um, words in light of the promises of the Lord. It says this. Every promise is built upon four pillars. God's justice or holiness, which will not let him deceive. His grace or goodness, which will not let him forget. His truth, which will not let him change. His power, which makes him able to accomplish. Church, those are wonderful pillars to consider. We think about the promises of God. We have a promise right here in the text. It's important that we understand this crown of life is promised by the Lord. Note two, it's promised by the Lord to those who love him. Listen, the one who endures the trial... The one who holds on to the Lord, trusts in him with all his heart, embraces his status with Christ above all things. This is the man who truly loves the Lord. You catch a glimpse of one's love for the Lord by how he navigates through the trial, do you not? 
Does he patiently endure the trial or is he going to allow his desires, is he going to allow his desires to override his love for the Lord? What is it to love the Lord? That question, I believe, surfaces right here in James 1, verse 12. Church, do you love the Lord? Do you recognize that love is a fruit of the Spirit? Do you realize that the Bible says you love God because he first loved you? Do you realize that? He loved you first. Have you delighted in God's love toward you, poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit who was given to us? Romans chapter 5, verse 5. You see, this crown of life of which James speaks is given to those who love the Lord. I'd like to remind you, and I believe James is going to offer plenty of reminders throughout this epistle. That your love for the Lord and your actions complement one another. They go hand in hand. 1 John 2, 6. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to what? Walk. As Christ walked. As you work through the trials of life, remember that the testing of your faith produces something in you. Remember that God desires to mature you. He desires to complete you. He desires that you would lack nothing and that you'd be fully equipped for every good work. And James displays in verse 12 the result of one who endures the trial in the right manner. But we need to also be clear on this. James is showing us that the characteristic of enduring the trial in the right manner is a genuine love for the Lord above all things. This crown of life is given to those who love him. It doesn't say it's given to those who simply walk an aisle. To those who maybe just said a prayer. The crown of life is given to those who love him. And Jesus says in Revelation 2.10, endure how long? Unto death. I'll give you the crown of life. This crown that's going to last forever. James displays in verse 12 this result of one who endures And in contrast, verses 13, 14, and 15. He's painting a picture of one who has allowed his own desires. There it is. His own desires to trump his love for and obedience to the Lord. Let no one say, he says in verse 13, I am tempted by God. Or the original says, by God I am tempted. Because you see the emphasis here, James is trying to point out. He's going to be real clear here in verse 13. He's going to let them know who's not responsible for this. By God, no one can be tempted. God's not the one. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Now that word tempt, temptation, same word used in the original as trial. They're the same words, perosmos. What's the difference? Why is it called trial earlier in the chapter, and why is it called temptation later on in the chapter? Good question. One writer, I believe, gives us a good answer to that. It says the same word, this parasmos. It's used for both ideas, both trying, testing, and temptation. 
Because the primary difference is, is not in the perosmos. It's not in the trial or temptation itself, but in a person's response to it. If a believer responds in faithful obedience to God's word, he successfully endures a trial. If he succumbs to it in the flesh, doubting and disobeying, he is tempted to sin. Right response, he says, leads to spiritual endurance, righteousness, wisdom, and the other blessings that are listed in verses 2 through 12. Wrong response leads to sin and death. Verse 15. How we respond to what's before us. How do we respond to it? The one who endures understands something about God. He understands, he realizes that God is for him. He's not against him. He sees in his trial that God is working all things together for good. Here it is again. To those who love him. He's reminded from the word that the one who began a perfect work in him is faithful to complete it. Philippians 1 verse 6. James wants his listener to hear very clearly in verse 13. God is not behind one's temptation to sin. God cannot be tempted by evil. By nature, God is holy. Sin cannot mix with a holy God. Remember Isaiah 6, 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Leviticus 19, verse 2 talks about how God is holy. 1 Peter 1 We see that the church is to be holy. Why? Because God is holy. He cannot be tempted by evil. And we see God's son, Jesus. He reflects this very truth in Matthew chapter 4. Remember when the devil came to test him? The Hebrew writer says it this way in chapter 2 verse 18. For in that he himself has suffered, that's Christ, being tempted, being tested... He is able to aid those who are tempted. Listen, God is not in the business of enticing you to sin. Do we we understand that? He is not in the business of enticing you to sin. He takes no delight in evil. God is light. In him there is no darkness. 1 John 1, verse 5. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. What are the implications of this truth then? It means that you and I, we have a faithful high priest to whom we can turn. When we find ourselves in the midst of trials, the Hebrew writer says that Jesus is able to aid those who are tempted. James wants to set the record straight about who's who's behind the curtain, so to speak, uh, of one's temptation to sin. And James is saying very loudly and very clearly, it's not God. Well, that's great. You know, sometimes people say what things are not. And they never tell us what it is. James doesn't leave us hanging. He follows up by saying who it's not. He then follows it up and says... If you keep reading verse 14, he fills in the blank. But each one is tempted when? Who's behind this? When he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. I believe the literal rendition of this is is best. In, in In the original language here, it would go more like this. But each one is tempted when by his own desires. He is drawn away and enticed. You see, because 
the literal helps us to see, I think, very clearly that the drawing away and the enticing comes by way of one's own desires. By one's own desires. God is not the one who tempts you to sin, according to James. One writer said, our God can be turned to in times of temptation, for he does not cause it. We can turn to him. You are responsible for your own sin. I believe that's the point James is making here. Will you take responsibility for the sin in your life? Each one is tempted. The cycle of sin that's described here in verses 14 and 15. Each one, each one is tempted. In other words, we're all in this together. Each one. There's not a different formula, a different plan, a different... Each one is tempted. Here's how. Here's how it happens. By his own desires. For each one, though, temptation's starting point is the desires within. These desires are not always rendered in a negative way in the scriptures. We need to remember that. The word oftentimes is used in a negative connotation. Luke 22, that fervent desire, that's a good thing. Right? Philippians 1.23, Paul says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. That's a good thing. But there are a lot of situations in the text, in the scriptures, we see that this desire is uh, held in a negative uh, connotation. In this context, one's own desires serve to block what God desires. To work in you and in your situation. What are, what are these desires? I think a helpful definition here. Any intense longing for an improper object. That is anything that gets in the way of our pursuit of God. Longing for an improper object. You can fill in the blank on what some of those improper objects might be. Right? I'd like to draw your attention back to verse 4. But let patience, perseverance, this patient endurance, have its perfect work, that you may be mature, complete, lacking nothing. When you go through the fire of testing, how are you going to respond? James doesn't leave us guessing here in the text. He shows the right way to handle trials that come. He calls the believer in Christ to count it all joy in the midst of the trial. The believer is to have a heart inclined toward the Lord and toward his word and the things of the spirit, desiring to hear from the Lord, crying out to God Wanting to know what God thinks about this situation. Seeking and searching for his wisdom from above. This is the man who is blessed by God. The man whose life serves as a manifestation of the love in his heart toward God. But there's another route people can go. James is putting this forward. There's another route people go. The believer is not exempt from traveling this route. Operating out of his own desires. Pushing aside, sweeping under perhaps his professed love for the Lord. By his own desires he is drawn away and enticed. 
these two words, these two phrases, which characterize, come flow out of one's own desires. Carried away, enticed, closely related terms, but different aspects of the temptation process. This first term, carried or drawn away, is often used as a hunting term. Refer to a, a baited trap designed to lure an unsuspecting animal into it. The second term, enticed, is from a word that was commonly used in the fishing arena, referring to bait, whose purpose was also to lure the prey from safety to capture and death. Those are the terms that are used there. Church, I believe the Lord would have you consider this morning from the text whether you have been living your life out of the well of your own desires or seeking what the Lord would have for your life. What does God think about your situation? How would the Lord have you work through this trial in your temptation to sin? Are you taking your thoughts captive? The Bible instructs us to that end, doesn't it? Take our thoughts captive. Are you setting your mind, Colossians 3, on things above or things here below? See, your, your own desires are not only the starting point for temptation to sin, but look where James goes with this. There's a sequence. Some of you, in your jobs, you, you, have, you have to do certain things in a certain order, in a certain sequence, in order for these things to occur like they're supposed to. Well, there's a word that's used in verse 15, then. That particular word has in mind a sequence, an order of things, and how they happen. And in verse 14, he's just said, by his own desires. Each one's tempted when, and drawn away, enticed, when, by his own desires. Desires come forth. Now, those things flow out. He gets drawn away. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, give, brings forth death. What we see right here, this sin cycle, if you will, in terms of the sequence or the order of things and how this begins in the well of one's own desires. Notice the terminology when desire has conceived. The word sin gives, gives, birth, gives birth to sin. And when it's fully grown... Gives birth to or generates, produces death. The, the imagery in the picture that James gives us is that of a, you know, one who is being born, right? I mean, that, that jumped out to me here just recently because we just had a child. Those terms. Conception. Giving birth to. One's own desires. Give birth to sin. You know, one writer gives four words. These are four helpful words, I believe, just to help us have a grasp and a handle on these two verses. Desire, deception. Deception comes into play with those words, right? Drawn away, enticed. There's deception there. The idea that to lure you away, your own desires, deception, design. Design is you're now, you're now, this is not just something 
you know about, but this is something you are actually planning and plotting out to carry out. You're designing, you're, you're, you're making plans to walk in darkness. You're designing it. Which leads to the last one, and that's disobedience. It's flat out disobedience. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is what? Death. By his own desires. We think about your own desires for just a moment. These decisions that get made by your own desires versus asking of God for his wisdom in verse 5. Elevating your desires over God's as it pertains to your children. Listen, while the text addresses each one, it says each one is tempted when? How an individual is tempted to sin. There's something to be said here about catering to your own desires. Parents, do you realize that your own desires, your own desires, have the potential to get in the way of what God desires for your children. Have you thought about that? You see, God has given to children, parents, and parents were to steward these gifts that God has given to us. But parents, we also must be aware, sometimes our own desires, the text applies right here, sometimes our own desires, if we're not careful, can get in the way of what God desires to do in and through our children. Make sure your desires don't trump what God's wanting to do and desiring to do in the lives of those in your home. Not only in your own life, but over those entrusted to your care. Your desires for them to pursue a certain field of study, a certain vocation. Your desires. Oh, I, I pray and hope that our, that our desires don't meddle with what God is desiring to do in the life of, of the children that he's given to us. Have you considered that your desires are perhaps in conflict with what God would want in their lives? You know, this, what we're talking about is, is, is not anything new. We can go all the way back to Genesis. Right? Genesis chapter 2, verse 6. And we saw that woman, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant, it was a desirable thing. To the eyes. It was a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her. He was there with her, and he ate. You know, sin and deception, they go hand in hand, don't they? And James, I believe, understands that very well. Because as he concludes the text, the text we're looking at this morning, he says this in verse 16 Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And this text, I believe, serves a dual purpose. First of all, I believe it is a warning against excusing oneself from responsibility for their own sin. If we apply the words to what follows in verses 17 and 18, we'll get to that next week. The warning is against a wrong view of God's character. Don't be deceived about who God is. Every good and perfect gift is from where? From above. Every good and perfect gift. But don't be deceived about sin. Don't be deceived about the trial. Don't be deceived. God doesn't tempt anyone. And you see various places in the scripture 
Genesis chapter 22, I'll give you an example. God, the text says God tested Abraham. And boy, was that a test. Take your son, your only son, and go up Mount Moriah and offer him there on an altar. Pretty big test, don't you think? What about the test with Hezekiah? Remember, Hezekiah was doing some really good things and Chronicles account, Hezekiah says that the Lord withdrew from him. Why? To test his heart. What about in John's gospel in chapter 6? Remember when there's a bunch of people there and, and there's, there's a meal that, and, and Jesus is saying to Philip, hey, how are we going to provide for all these people? And I love John 6, verse 6. As John's writing, he says that Jesus was testing him. He already knew what he was going to do. God places these tests before us. But the tests that he places before us are not tests to induce us to sin. They are tests that are placed before us to help us, to build us, to strengthen us, to encourage us in the faith. To make us more like his son, Jesus. And when we take a trial, when we take a test, and by our own desires, our own desires override all things and wash over all things that God may be wanting to do. We are placing our desires primary, over and above anything God would want. And we see the path. We see the sequence. We're drawn away. We're enticed. When these desires come, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Church, what a sad picture. We see both ends of it. James gives us both sides of it. He doesn't, just say, he doesn't just paint the flowery picture of the right way. Here's the right way to handle and navigate through trials. He gives us the other side of it. Praise God he gives us the other side of it. Because it's an ugly picture. It's a place we ought not want to be. And it's a place we don't have to be if we see the truth of the word. He's called us to go the right way. And he's given us all the resources necessary to walk the right way in the midst of the trial, to be able to truly count it all joy. One writer says, we're prone to deceive ourselves unless we constantly guard and preserve the truth. Unless we constantly guard and preserve the truth. You are going to walk and be deceived. The last words of John in his first epistle is what? Remember? What's he talk about? Anybody remember? What's the last part? Don't be overcome by what? Idols. These things that deceive us. These things that steal our joy. These things that rob us of what God desires to do in our lives. It's the last thing he mentions in that epistle. 
It's almost like, hey, you know, before I leave, I got to make sure you know this. I got to make sure you hold on to this. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Do you see that beloved? He, it's a term of endearment. There's some hard words here, but he loves these people to whom he's speaking. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart. Guard your heart. God's way or man's way? God's wisdom or man's wisdom? God's word of truth or man's fleeting desires of the flesh? God's eternal perspective or man's temporary selfish perspective? Blessed is the man who endures. Blessed is the man who endures. Church, for Christ's sake, for Christ's sake, endure. Endure to the end. And you too will receive the crown of life. No matter what the world may say, there is nothing better than that reward. There's nothing better now to be living for than the reward he offers. Do you love him? Are you going to live your life for him? Church, there's a good word here from Pastor James. (laughs) And I encourage and exhort each one of you to walk in this way that he's prescribed as God through the Holy Spirit has given him a word. Let's walk the right way. There are no excuses here. Each one of us are responsible for our own sin. We see that God desires to help us and be an aid for us in our own temptation. The question is, are we going to him and will we ask? Go back to verse 5. Be reminded of that, that wisdom that's needed. And let's ask of God and the promises that will be given to all. If we're asking and coming before him in the right manner. Don't be deceived. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Father, this is such an important text. I pray for this church at Hope in Christ that our own desires would be seen, revealed, acknowledged, Repented of, Lord, as we see these desires that are not in alignment with yours. Oh, Father, I pray that we would acknowledge those before you. We would confess those, acknowledge those, turn to you. Recognizing that that is not the path that you've called us to. Instead, Father, I pray that we would meditate and dwell upon the one described as blessed in the text in verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures, the man who perseveres, who patiently endures. Father, I pray that we would cry out to you on a regular basis, asking of you, longing to follow you as your subjects, as your children. Lord, may we want to know and desire to know what you think 
and how you would want us to walk and go in these days ahead. May we not move forward, Lord, until we've heard from you, until we've asked of you. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would speak, would challenge us and convict us. We thank you that your Spirit always points us to the things of Christ. Father, I pray this word this morning would pierce and penetrate our hearts, that we would carry this word around with us, that, Father, we would be grateful for the word you've given, and that we would see how good of a God you are, that you do not tempt any one of us. Father, it is your desire to conform and shape and mold into the image of your Son, to test the genuineness of this faith, Lord, in our lives. Oh, Father, I pray we would be found faithful. I pray we would hold on and endure, persevere to the end, looking forward to this crown of life that is not going to ever perish. It's not going to be faded away like we see the picture in verses 9 through 11 of this rich man who's fading away because his efforts are spent in his own pursuits. May our days be spent pursuing you. Oh, Father, I pray this for everyone here. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.